fifth grade and under as the rest of us turning over to Acts chapter number one. Would you turn over to Acts chapter one? Um, I hope you caught that lyric, uh, just the song before that one. But this I know with all my heart that his blood has ransomed me. I forget the exact wording there, but uh, the blood of Christ has ransomed me. I want to invite you, if, listen, if there's anybody here today that you cannot honestly say that I know that as a fact with all of my heart. If there's any part of your being that is doubtful that your sins have been washed away, please don't leave today without talking to us and meeting with us and letting us show you how you can have that. 100% forgiveness and, and assurance that Christ has forgiven you. We'll take as long as it needs to take to help you. And uh, make sure you see us if, if that's any doubt in your heart. Uh, Acts chapter number 1. In a few minutes, we're going to, Lord willing, finish the chapter. I don't know about you guys. We have different personalities. Um, and maybe some of you are like, boy, one of my favorite things about church is a good old-fashioned business meeting. You like that? You like going to church? Like, man, love when we have business meetings. Well, I'm, I'm not in that camp. I'm not a, I, I, don't, I don't come to church for business meetings, but sometimes we have to have them. We'll be having one uh, early in January. I think it'll be the 8th of January, and we'll be having a meeting there about our budget and all those good things, uh, and that'll be on the agenda. But uh, in a normal course of things, I just like to meet and worship the Lord and meet with His people and study His Word. But today, we're actually going to be studying about a bit of a business meeting uh, that's going to take place in the upper room. So let's real quickly review uh, what we've covered. Uh, not, I'm not going into great depth, but for three weeks, uh, we've been preaching through Acts chapter number 1. And early on, we noticed that Jesus, in the first verses, he had called apostles. He had convinced his apostles that he was alive after his death, after his crucifixion. He convinced them of that, and he gave them certain commands to go make disciples in all the world. And then he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait in the city of Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which was going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was going to come not many days from now. Not many days. They now know it's within days. Well, they meet the Lord in Jerusalem. They're just outside of Jerusalem over on the Mount of Olives. They think... All these circumstances, and he's been talking about the kingdom, told them to wait for the outpouring of the Spirit, and he's the Messiah. They put, they think he's getting ready to start the millennial kingdom just right there any moment, and even ask him if that's what he's going to do. But he diverts their attention away from wondering when the kingdom is going to start, and more worried about who is going to make it into the kingdom, who's going to get saved. So he, had this, he, he kind of impressed upon them, be worried less about when and more about who. He told them... You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the power is for many things, but one of the things is for your testimony about Christ to be empowered and effective for him to make disciples. And then, while he's talking, we saw this last week, he literally ascended from earth into heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he's at right now, seated. Christ just rose right from them, ascended into the heavens, and they were left dumbfounded. And then two angels said, why are you men standing gazing into the sky? Go do what he's told you to do, which was to go back into the city of Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the, of the Spirit. And when they receive the power of the Spirit, then they will go make disciples into the uttermost part of the earth. And now we find them in the upper room. And where we finished last week was they go back the six-tenths of a mile into the city. They go into the upper room where they had partaken of the Last Supper. And there's... The Lord's apostles, his brothers and sisters, his mother, and some women from Galilee. And we're going to find out that there's other people there for a total of 120 in the upper room. And the main thing they're doing, 
So when we look back at Luke's gospel, he's our author. He tells us that they were going daily to the temple and praising God, but the main thing, they kept rededicating themselves to prayer. And as Mike mentioned in the announcements, we talked a lot last week about the importance of corporate prayer. It's probably one of the most neglected things that churches do, and we need to improve. We need to improve. Be here 6.30 Wednesday night in the fellowship hall, and, and you might want to bring that little prayer guide with you that's in your um, bulletin this morning. We'll probably hit something in there, I would imagine, uh, this coming Wednesday. So come, be part of our corporate prayer, and that's going to be a theme that's going to run throughout. All right, so now Jesus has said it's not going to be many days. So here we are. For 40 days after his resurrection, he kept showing himself alive And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you've heard me say it a few times, we know that there's going to be 10 days between his ascension and the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So somewhere in verse 15, what I'm about to read, when it says, in those days, we're talking about this 10-day period before the Spirit has, has been poured out and after the ascension of Jesus. Now look at verse 15. We're going to hopefully preach through the end of chapter 1 this morning, these 12 verses. Look at verse 15. In those days, those 10 days... Peter stood, note that, note, note that posture, Peter stood up among the brothers. And then we have this parenthetical note, the company of persons was in all about 120. Real quick, I'm going to make some comments as we read. This doesn't mean there's only 120 followers and people who believe in Jesus in the whole world at this time. There's apparently 120 are in Jerusalem. We know that 500 saw him at one time, probably in Galilee, and those people had not yet made their way down to the feast for Pentecost that is coming. They'll be on their way, no doubt. But there's 120 in the upper room. So Luke gives us that. So Peter stands among the brothers. Now we're moving on to verse 16. And he said, so here you go. Here's, our, here's, our, here's one of our key texts this morning. Brothers. So picture 120 people. Not quite as many as they have in here this morning. I don't know how big this upper room was. I'm sure it was a lot smaller than this. It's an upper room of some building in Jerusalem where they were staying for 10 days. And they're doing lots of praying. And then Peter stands and says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What he wants to get across is that nothing's caught God off guard. Everything's right on schedule. It had to happen this way. Verse 16. Brothers. So picture him talking in the upper room. The other ten apostles are sitting there. His mother's sitting there. His brothers and sisters. These other people. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth Of David concerning Judas. There's a lot in that sentence. Let's read it again. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So nothing's taken God off guard. Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So the scripture had that, had to happen that way, Peter's saying. And yes, he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17. For he was numbered among us. And us there means the twelve. He was among us, Peter is saying. And was allotted his share in this ministry. With me and these guys. These are my brothers in Christ. The eleven that were left. And now, I, I want to note this. Do you see a difference between verse 17 and 18? Everybody see that? Verse 17 finishes with a quotation mark. Verse 18 begins with a parenthesis. And this is where the ESV translators had to make a call of interpretation that affects how they put it. And it's pretty clear they got it right. Okay, so we're going to pick back up in a minute what Peter is saying. But, but Luke, our author, is interjecting some commentary about Judas. And then he's going to get back to Peter's words. So Peter has said, hey, it had to happen. 
He was one of us. Now Luke inserts this information. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field. He acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So there's a lot there. We can't look at what, what Judas did. As some people say, it was some, a well-meaning, good intention act that, that went off the rails, not how he thought it was going to happen. No, the Bible clearly says what Judas did was wickedness. Now, y'all help me out. Help me out. This man acquired a field with... So he acquired it. A field is bought, purchased with the reward of his wickedness. What was the reward of his wickedness? Say it again. 30 pieces of silver. Verse 18 again. Luke tells us. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling. So he acquired this, this field is bought with that money. And falling. Headlong. As you have a note there in the ESV. even says this idea here can be his, his body swelled up. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Doesn't mean, oop, he tripped and fell, and his guts gushed out. Doesn't mean that. No, he fell from some distance, and the conditions were such that when he landed, he burst open. Like there was this explosion of him that burst open in the middle, and his bowels, like all of his intestines and organs, just come gushing out. And the result, sorry, um, that's what the Bible says. You say, I don't like that image. Me neither. Verse 19. Luke says, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Hey, did you hear what happened to the guy? You remember Jesus that crucified a couple months ago? Did you hear what happened to the guy? Back then, it actually would have not been a couple months ago. It would have been within days. Did you hear what happened to the guy that betrayed him? Yeah, his blood is splattered all over down there. It's nasty. You ought to go by there and look. It's nasty. Verse 19. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Oh, that's the field of blood. That's the field of blood. That's where that guy died. Now, back to Peter. So now we're back to our quotation marks. Let me get the flow. I'm going back to verse 16, and I'm going to skip the parenthetical statement. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us, arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted, allotted his share in this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms. And now Peter is standing and he's going to pull together two Psalms. Psalm 69 and, and Psalm 109. A couple of passages. He's going to put them together. Do y'all remember at the end of Luke? Do you remember at the end of Luke there were these two disciples that were walking along with Jesus. They didn't know he was resurrected. Do you remember that? And finally he revealed his hands and they realized who he is and he's gone. But the Bible says that he opened their minds. I don't know who those two disciples were but apparently... At that moment, and then even Jesus later breathes on them the Holy Spirit. So they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelt, baptized with the Holy Spirit like it's coming. But he's already breathed on them in such a way that they're already understanding the Scriptures. So Luke 24, Luke tells us that they began when he opened their mind, then they understood the Scriptures. So apparently, miraculously, in a brand new way... Peter already is able to know that these two Psalms are talking about Judas and they have consequences so here's why he's calling this meeting verse 20 he says for it is written in the book of psalms may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it that's out of psalm 69 25 look at it again so this is predicting this person this person is going to come his house is going to be empty why because he dies 
Verse 20, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So what Peter's saying is this hasn't caught God off guard. The scripture had to be fulfilled. But now he brings in Psalm 109, a little phrase, and look at verse 20, 20 again. And, quote, let another take his office. So everybody should be feeling the flow. This has a caught off guard. It happened to have that way. Happened to have that way. Happened that way. This man died, so no one's going to dwell in his house. We know he's the only one that was a Judean. He probably has a house. Nobody's going to live in that house, and probably no one's going to buy that house, I would imagine. A little fun fact. Back in 2003, we bought a house on foreclosure in our neighborhood. And there were rumors about it that the person that left abruptly the day after 9-11-2001, and then the house just stood empty for a long time, like, that person's a terrorist, and like, we don't know, that was just the rumor, but we bought it at such a deep discount, I don't care who lived there, I just want a good deal, right, but Judas's house, nobody's going to live there, that's that guy, the darkest name in history, but now Peter says, that's been fulfilled, we need to do this, let another take his office. So, you see verse 21? Peter's still talking. Because of that, so we've got business to do. They're in the upper room. Now I'm going to go through the text. You ready? So one of the men who have accompanied us, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, that would literally be just... Shortly, a few days before this moment, from this time John's ministry till he was taken up just the other day, one of these men, he's no doubt looking at the room, one of these men must become with us, the eleven, a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. So there's obviously a gap of time between verse 22 and 23. There's some research being done and some, some you know, homework that's being done and delving in, getting the facts and the conditions. And then finally, verse 23, they put forward two. Two men put forward. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. So this man has like three names here. And Matthias. So you have Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, and you have Matthias. There's the two people that it's going to come down. Who's going to take Judas's place among the twelve? Verse 24 says, and they prayed. Boy, just keep telling you, it's going to be a running, a running theme. They, corporate prayer, They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven Apostles, would you notice three things with me this morning? Number one, in this note that you're about to write, I need to talk about both parts of this note. So here's your first point, but it's kind of two within one. Let's notice, first of all, in verse 15 and 16, the first part of 16, Peter speaks boldly about Scripture. Did you catch it? Peter speaks boldly about Scripture. As they're writing that, I'm going to read verse 15 16 again. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Did you catch that? So Peter's going to stand up and speak boldly about the scripture. 
What were they? Y'all help me out. What, were, what was the main thing they were doing in these 10 days? The main thing they were doing was what? Praying. Guys, I want to tell you something. When, when people pray, when a person or a group of people pray, there is a byproduct of prayer. There's multiple. I believe prayer bring, brings clarity, and I think Peter got clarity during prayer. But prayer also brings great boldness. Prayer brings boldness. If you're like, oh, I'm a, t- I'm, I'm a very timid person, I can't say anything. I would ask you, do you spend a lot of time in prayer? By the way, listen, I'm not talking about just setting aside side time where you go through the motions and say some prayers out there to whoever what, like to the ceiling. Here's what I mean. Prayer has a byproduct of boldness when a person genuinely has extended time talking to the almighty God of the universe. And when I mean when they're talking, like they sense him bending over them or right in front of them and they're talking to the almighty, then the fear of man seems to really subside. When you spend a lot of time with God, you're not afraid of other people. It's just a fact. So here we find Peter you say, well, Peter's a natural leader. Yes, Peter stands, and he very boldly takes the lead. Now, I want you to start your notes. You'll not have the whole thing up there just yet. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, you don't have it written there. But this is a borrowed, tweaked paraphrase. This is not Piper's quote. It's something I remembered him printing sometime past. I don't remember the exact, but I am tweaking it. Okay? Here it comes. Leadership. What is it? Proper. I want to propose to you that proper leadership is not feeling superior to others. But instead, it is feeling the need to initiate. Digest that real quick. Proper leadership is somebody's like, why are you leading? Because I'm superior. I'm the best one at it. Get out of the way. That's not proper. That's arrogance. Proper leadership is not feeling superior to other people. It is feeling the weight and the burden of the need to initiate. Watch, because this is important to do and nobody's doing it. So I'm going to do this. Here's my thought. Peter is not, hey guys, I got a great idea how we can pass the time. We don't know when the Spirit's coming. Could be a while. I got an idea. Oh, what's well, sure. Let's play Monopoly. Oh, okay, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's, let's play dice. You got some cards? No, that's not what he's doing. He doesn't even say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's have a business meeting and replace Judas while we're at it. That's not what he's doing. He's like, this needs done. It is urgent. We need to settle this up. Take care of business. Get our house in order. Now, to finish that quote, would you write this down? For Peter, you got to feel this in the upper room. For Peter, of all the people, to stand up and take such initiative tells us something about the situation. That tells us, number one, that Jesus had forgiven Peter for what he did seven weeks earlier. Remember how he three times denied knowing the Lord. Even on the night that the Lord told him, you're going to deny me. He tells him, tonight you will deny me three times. No, I won't. He still does it. Horrible sin. Felt horrible for it. But for him to now, seven weeks later, to stand up and so boldly take the lead, tells me that not only Christ forgave him, here's the key, Peter received and accepted the forgiveness of the Lord. That's a key thought. Why? Because had he not actually accepted, Jesus forgave him. But had Peter not accepted the forgiveness of the Lord, guilt would have robbed him of his confidence and his boldness. I, speak, I say that from experience. 
There have been times I've had to stand here on Sunday mornings, two weeks ago, and have some boldness, but not quite the boldness that I really would like to have because something just wasn't right within me. Something in my life just wasn't exactly where it needed to be. But Peter is able to stand and take the lead and feel no weight of the world. He's not feeling the weight of his sin. Why? He knows Jesus has forgiven him, and he has accepted that, and he is moving on and moving ahead. As you finish that note, guys, I want to put all of Christians, I'm talking to Christians here, I'm going to put us all in one category, and then I'm going to split that category in three parts. Put yourself in the three. All Christians commit acts of sin. Can we agree on that? All no Christians, no Christians wallow in sin as a lifestyle. All Christians commit acts of sin. Now let's put us into three categories. Do you know what I'm afraid of? I'm, I think they're in this room right now. It might be you. There's a category of we all commit sin, but there's a category of Christian that when they commit sin, they don't confess their sins. They don't set aside a time and they're check your heart right now. Is this you? Are you like, oh, I'm a Christian, and you really are. You're going to go to heaven, but you commit sins through the day and through the week, but you don't actually take those and confess them to the Lord, and you wonder why your Christian life is kind of sluggish. There just seems to be this strain. I tried to pray, but nothing really happens. It's you have a lot of sin built up. You have not lost your salvation, but your, your relationship with the Lord is the same, but your fellowship is strained because you don't confess your sin. Group two these Christians also commit acts of sins and they confess their sins to the Lord and they receive and accept His forgiveness based on the promises of the Word of God and they move forward in victory. Group three, these are people who when they commit acts of sin, they confess their sin but sometimes in their mind what they did is so grievous and horrible that they cannot get out from under. I confess it but they still literally walk through life spiritually like this wounded and unwilling to do anything for the Lord and certainly have no boldness and they can't even really pray to the Lord. No boldness at the throne of grace either. Why? Because they've confessed but they've not accepted the forgiveness of the Lord. Remember 1 John 1 9? If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is faithful. If you're in this third group this morning, don't live there. Peter didn't. Peter got up and moved forward. But if you live there this morning, you're like, I have done something fairly recently and it just still haunts me and I can't move forward. Then take 1 John 1, 9, claim it before the Lord. Lord, you are faithful. You are going to forgive me. You are just. God, you have grounds to forgive me. As bad as what I did, it is bad. Lord, what Jesus did is so much more powerful than what I did. That's your ground. So I'm going to go ahead and receive it. And I'm going to move forward as your child knowing that you are smiling on me. Don't live in defeat. Peter did it. Second thing I want you to notice, still into this first point. The early church, what we're going to find in today's text, the early church looked to two main sources of truth. You say, Jeff, this is old as hills. Every preacher in the county is using these points today. I know, but because it's in the text, this is where we're going to go. Two sources of truth, the Scripture and prayer. The early church looked to the Scripture. Do you see what Peter's doing? Hey, guys, it had to be fulfilled what was written in the Scripture, and he starts talking about the Word of God. 
And then we notice that when they need to know what God's will is, what do they do? They return to very specific kind of prayer. We need your will, God. We need truth. And so they turn to prayer and to Scripture. Continue your pen moving there. Notice verse 16. A couple of thoughts coming out of verse 16. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Catch that phrasing. In a few minutes, I'm going to have you quick. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do a deep dive. I'm going to have you write some quick things about the inspiration of Scripture. I'm going to have you write them down while we're here. And you may wonder, why do we believe these things? Because there are some massive passages in Scripture. This is one of them. This is one of the clearest verses in all the Bible about the inspiration of the Scripture. So while we're here, we want to learn what it has to say. Look at it again with your eyes. Look at verse 16. The Scripture had to be fulfilled, the Scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke. The Scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke. He spoke it beforehand. How? By the mouth of David. So the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. The result was the Scripture. Now we're starting to feel what's going on. To complete that thought, not only is this one of the clearest verses in the Bible on divine inspiration, but what it teaches us is that the ultimate author of the Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke and David spoke. Holy Spirit is the primary, ultimate author of all Scripture. Does anybody here, and by the way, I'm, I don't know that anybody will raise your hand. And by the way, if you do, I, I, I have respect for you and I admire you. I'm not in your class. Does anybody here, you're just like, I'll admit it. I like Shakespeare. Anybody? Hey, right here. Over here. Right there. Y'all are the ones that I would have thought. Y'all are like the bookworm type people. And like, yeah, more power to you. I'm not. I was raised in, in a, an environment where we just didn't read Shakespeare. We didn't quote Shakespeare. Uh, and some of you are the same way. You say, why are you talking about that? Watch. Hang with me. Because while we're here, we need to do something with this knowledge. Jeff, what's your point? Shakespeare lived in the 15-1600s. He was a man. He had a body. He had a soul and a spirit. He's dead. Watch. Listen. If by a miracle, if by a miracle, the spirit, the spirit of Shakespeare, the real spirit of Shakespeare that made Shakespeare who he is, if that could somehow be indwelt in my body, just like that, like right now, then in a few weeks you may be wondering, why is Brother Jeff teaching Shakespearean English down at the university all of a sudden? Because the very spirit of Shakespeare has come in me. Now I am interested in it and I have vast knowledge of it because the author is living inside of me. I get it because he's living in me. He, I'm still in here and he's in here and now he's dominant. And like, I get this now. I'd, we don't really know what he meant when he wrote. I'm like, get out of the way. I know what he meant. And I could tell them. What's your point? I shouldn't have to say the point, should I? When we get saved, the very author of the Bible comes and lives inside of us. We're not saying the Father, the Son. Specifically, the Bible gives the authorship of the Word of God to the Holy Spirit. The, you say, I don't get the Bible. Ask Him to open it and let you understand it. And He will. Hold your spot here. Go to 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter 1. Flip over there quickly. This is another one of those... Important text that goes together with this. Second Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, here's what's happening. 
Peter is saying, hey, I wasn't fooled and I'm not fooling you when I was telling you about the power and the glory of the coming of Jesus. He's saying, I didn't get this stuff secondhand. I'm not going to read it all before, but if you want to read the verses before, Peter's going to say, I was on the holy mountain, talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw his body transformed. I saw, we're just saying Jesus' majesty. Peter's like, I saw his body altered and transformed in front of me. And it's like, it was very humbling. And then he says, I heard the voice of God come out of the, out of the sky at, on top of that mountain. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter says, I was there. But he also says, not only do I have eyewitness firsthand experience of his glory, but he says, we also have the sure word of prophecy. Now look down at verse 20. He's going to say something about the sure word of prophecy. How do you know that, Peter, how do you know Jesus, that man, Jesus of Nazareth, how do you know he really is the Christ? I saw him transformed on the mountain, and he matches all of the prophecies about the Christ that is to come. That's how I know. And the main reason is not what I saw or heard. That's secondary. The main reason is he fits the scriptures. Verse 20. Peter writes, knowing this, first of all, let's couple this with what Luke writes in, in um, what Peter said in, in Acts 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation. No, that, so here's how the Bible did not happen. It did not come from anyone's own, no one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. I know I've said this before, but I just want to say it plainly again. No human being decided, I think I am on my own just going to start writing the Bible. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So how did it happen? That's how it did it happen. How did it happen? But men spoke. Men spoke from God. This, this happens first. This is the domino. God spoke. Men spoke from God when, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, literally as they're picked up and moved and controlled, what they're writing is actually His words. Now write this down. Based off of... 2 Peter 1 and Acts chapter 1. Put the thoughts together. We learn that all Scripture not only has a primary author of the Holy Spirit, all Scripture has a secondary author, which is a human author that is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what God wants him to write. Holy Spirit's the primary author, but the human author is also an author. He is writing his words, but he's ultimately writing the words that God is controlling him and wanting him to write. He's the secondary. There were 40 of them in the Bible. By the way, that note that you're writing, or maybe you're about to write in a moment, that, it'll be in a moment, that is why when you read the Bible, certain authors' personalities comes out in their writings. Luke in Luke and Acts, we can figure out, man, this guy is a stickler for his history and his dates and who's in charge. He wants the exact title given to the Roman leadership and government. He really puts outcast people in a good light because he's the only Gentile writer. We sense his personality. Paul has a personality. Peter has a personality. Moses had his personality. It comes through, but ultimately it's the words of God. So that, and I told you we're not doing a deep dive. When we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, I feel comfortable saying this. We, here at Graceview, believe in the following words in correlation with the inspiration of Scripture. We believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Verbal. What do I mean? Don't say it out loud. You say, Jeff, I've heard preachers say that. We believe in the verbal inspiration. Listen, we believe that when God inspired the Word of God, He inspired the actual words. 
Not just the ideas. He didn't just impress, hey, Luke, there's the basic idea. Write it how you want. God inspired, inspired means God breathed out the words. Every word matters. Sometimes we build whole points in our message on a word. Words matter. We also, in correlation with this, we believe in the idea of plenary. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Somebody help me out. When we say the plenary inspiration of the Word of God, we believe that what of the Bible is inspired? All of the Bible. All. The first 11 chapters of Genesis? Yes. The parts we like? Yes. The parts you don't like? Yes. And they're in there. All of it. And we include these words of inerrancy, meaning the Bible... Not in its translations and all the various forms of translations and copy. Mankind can have errors. But in its original autographs, the Word of God has no, had no errors whatsoever. And it is infallible. It is, it is incapable of making any mistake. Now write that note. All Scripture has a primary author. All Scripture has a secondary human author. You can sense their personalities coming out in their books. And when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, because of these strong verses like... Acts 1, verse 16, and 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, and 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Because of this, we believe in these concepts. So that the final result is what? This perfect book that is the authoritative Word of God. Just before we go to our second point this morning, and that was our longest one. Let me mention this. The perfect Word of God has many literary styles within it. It has history, accurate history. We are reading, Luke is writing in somewhere around 62, 63 A.D., and he's writing about things that had already happened, and he's doing it very accurately. Well, the Word of God has that. It has many forms of literary style. But one of them is actually noticed in verse 16. Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand one of the main styles one of the main components of scripture is that it will from time to time write about events in detail long before they've even happened detailed events not just before they happen here's the details sometimes years before they happen sometimes long I mean 500 700 1000 right here when he refers to David writing in Psalm 69 and 109. He's talking about David lived a thousand years before this, and now it's coming true. A thousand years, 1,500 years, 2,000 years before it's actually going to be fulfilled. The Bible can nail it in detail. Example, the Bible predicts that the Messiah, when he comes, would be betrayed. And his betrayer would be a friend. This is, all in the, not, this is not in David's writings in those psalms he's pointing out. I'm talking about things on top of this. This just says whoever, whoever does this is going to die and he needs to be replaced, his office. But on top of that, he's going to be betrayed. His betrayer will be a friend. His betrayer is going to be someone who takes bread from him at his own table. He's going to betray him for 30 coins. The coins are going to be silver. The coins are going to be thrown, not laid, not left, thrown in the temple. The money's going to be collected and it's going to buy a field known as the potter's field. All of these details literally hundreds of years before it happened. The other day I'm in my devotions, I'm finishing up the, I was finishing up the book of Daniel. That's where I was privately. And I was blown away. I, I, got, I got just bogged down in it. Longer than I really had time to spend. 
I got like to chapter 10, 11, 12, the last three cha- chapters of Daniel, and I'm starting reading all these notes in the ESV study Bible. You ought to get you one if you don't have one. Ask somebody to get you one for Christmas, the ESV study Bible. Plug, 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 right. I'm reading that, and it's amazing the detail of specific details answered to prophecy long before it happened. Guys, Daniel is so specific in his prophecies. When he wrote in the 500s before Christ, here's Christ, here's us 2,000 years later, over here's Daniel living in the 600s and 500s. The skeptics that hate what I'm about to say say that is impossible to have been written there. It had to have been written in the 100s and early 200s. There's no way anybody could know the details. And if you want to get lost and probably take about a week to unfold it all and you have to know some real history, go see Lindsay perhaps. But uh, to know all of that, I mean like detail after detail in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of what happens between the 500s and the 200s. The skeptics say it had to be written here. It couldn't have been. Here's the only problem with their little, their little skepticism. Written here. They say it has to be here. Watch. The Jews had already accepted it as the word of God here. It had to have been written here. Long before it actually is fulfilled. Peter preaches boldly about the word of God. Number two this morning. Did you notice with me the prophecy about Judas? So this is the second part of verse 16 down to verse 20, and here we go. Let's read it again. Judas, verse 16 in the, at the end. Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry, Peter says. Now Luke adds, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling. Headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a Keldama, which is the field of blood. Then Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So he's going to die. It's already been predicted. Judas betrays his master. Why? For at least three reasons. Judas loved money. He loved it. I'm not saying Judas liked what money could buy and enjoyed the blessings of God. I'm not saying that. I mean he craved it. He was consumed. Why did he do this? Number two, Judas was actually indwelt by Satan himself. Not a demon, not a powerful demon. Satan himself entered Judas and caused him, helped lead him into doing what he did. Number three, why did Judas do what he did? Because Judas is only following Jesus because he believes that Jesus is the Messiah and and Judas wants a high-ranking position in the coming kingdom. He's convinced Jesus is the Messiah. Listen, he was right. The problem was, as Jesus kept moving through the three years of teaching them in that third year, Jesus keeps talking about he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be given over to the Gentiles. His own people are going to condemn him. He's going to die. It's going to be a crucifixion. He will die and be raised the third day. All Judas was hearing is, if you're going to die, then you're not the one that I'm thinking you are. And so he's ready to abort the mission. You're not the political leader I think you are. And so he betrays the Lord. Hold your spot here because we see what Luke writes about Judas. Would you go back where we were five months ago? Would you go back with me, Matthew 27? Got your Bible? Flip over. Take it with you, Matthew 27. Let's go back there. You want to have it open. I'm not going to like camp out here. Look at verse 3. So what we're about to read... Some people would say is a contradiction to Acts chapter 1. It's not a contradiction. It's a what that starts with letter C. It doesn't contradict it. It complements. So it's going to complement. Taken both together, they're going to give us a fuller idea of what happened. 
So what happened? Matthew is right. And Luke is right in Acts 1. Both are right. Let's see what happened. Now we're looking at the prophecy about Judas. What happened? Number 3. Verse 3. Then when Judas... This is after he's betrayed him. By the way, the verse is right in front of that. The Sanhedrin had their little rush morning trial after the crooked trials in the night. And now they send him over to the Roman governor. And Judas has seen what's become of this. And apparently it didn't go how he thought it was going to go. So verse 3. Then when This is important. Really get this. Because we're going to loop back to where we began. Talking about the difference between Peter that gave him boldness. And we're going to see the opposite of that in this man. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders. I don't know if that meeting was at some other office area, some palace area, some meeting room, or did Judas possibly have made his way all the way into the temple courtyard as far as he could go as a non-Levite, a non-priest. Verse 3 again. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, watch verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. You see what he's saying? I don't want this money anymore. Take it back. I don't want it. I sinned. I betrayed innocent blood. Let him go. I was wrong. Here's your money back. Undo the whole thing. Very foolishly. Verse 5, after they've said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, that sounds like your problem. That's not our problem. They're not stopping. Verse 5, when he realized they were not going to take the money back, verse 5 says, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple. This is not the temple courtyard. The word temple here means the building of the temple. He's chucking this, apparently over a wall of some kind. Throwing down the piece of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. So you say, how did, how did Judas die? This over here in Acts 1 sounds a little confusing. He died because he hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, they know what happens to him. And they've got to do something. They can't leave this money laying in the temple. So they collect it up and they said, it is not lawful to put them in, this money into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel. There's a meeting here between 6 and 7. They took counsel and bought with them the 30 piece of silver, the potter's field, as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called, in the, called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. These guys, these chief priests are fulfilling scripture after scripture and they have no clue they're doing it. If they really didn't want to make it look like Jesus is the Messiah, then don't do what you're doing. But they can't help it because the scripture had to be fulfilled is what Peter told us. So if you're taking notes in a moment, I want you to write this down. These texts are not contradictory. These two texts are complementary. Now, here's what we know happens. I'm going to... I'm going to say some facts, but I'm also going to weave some possibly and probablys. All right? You with me? I'm admitting some I'm filling the blanks, but I, I, I think this is probably what happened. They're not contradictory. Jesus, Judas, I'm sorry, Judas knows Jesus is innocent. And he's convicted about that, what he's done. And he wants to give the money back and he tries to return it. They don't want it. That's blood money. Can't take it. 
They refuse it. He throws it. And as a result, he ends up going out and hanging himself. So he dies by hanging. Now, remember, it was the feast of unleavened bread that was coming. Passover, followed by the seven more days of a feast. I'm going to propose to you that Judas hanged himself, apparently over a cliff above a field that was known as the potter's field. So he's hanged himself from some tree with a rope, and possibly, no, again, I'm reading between the lines, either no one saw him for a while, or they saw him and no one wants to defile themselves. You can't touch a dead body or you're not going to be able to partake in the feast. If you ever touch that dead body, then you're going to be ceremonially unclean. It's going to take days. And you're, so let's just wait and do it after. I'm offering that apparently they didn't see him or they did, but days go by and his body ends up swelling up. And eventually, obviously, the rope or the branch that's holding his dead, swelling body, finally gives way, and he falls down to the rocks or the ground below. And it isn't just like a man falls, and oh, there's a pool of blood. There's, ooh, there's this explosion. Guts come all out, and the word spreads. And these priests are left with this money, and they're like, what are we going to do with it? Can't put it back in the treasury. It's blood money. This is tainted money. Let's buy that field, bury that guy in it. And any strangers who die in Jerusalem, and they don't have a burial plot, We'll bury them in it as well. And it became known as the field of blood. Why? Because it was bought with blood money. And Judas's blood is splattered in the potter's field. Would you write that down? Acts 1 and Matthew 27 are complementary. He hanged himself. But it appears the rope or the branch that he was hanging on broke and gave way. These are not contradictory passages. While you're doing that, I want to quickly move to the next thought in this second point. And that is a lesson we need to learn from Judas. I want to give you a moment because I don't want you to miss this because it's kind of piggybacking back to some things we said earlier about Peter. Here we go. Why did Judas hang himself? Why does anybody kill themselves? This man is under extreme, um, listen, extreme emotional anguish. He would rather die than keep living with the anguish. He feels horrible for what he's done. He desperately wants relief. I mean, he feels so convicted. He just wants relief. He'll take his life to try to get some relief. And that's what he did. I want to ask you some questions based off what we read. I know we only read it one time, but I want to ask you a question. Was Judas sorry for what he did? It's a yes or no. Was Judas sorry for what he did? Did he verbally admit he was wrong in what he did? Did he attempt to restore what he could? Yes. Here's the, 30, here's the money back. I don't want it. Was he remorseful? Yes. But Judas proves to us a lesson. It's what we all need to get. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Now I'm switching gears. Earlier I was talking to saved people. Now I'm saying to you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may say, oh, I know I'm a sinner and I feel really, really bad about it. And I've even told God that I'm a sinner. That's great. You're on your way. You may even feel remorseful. You may even be trying... Turn over a new leaf and make up for wrong things that you've done. That's fine. That is great. 
But write this down. Judas proves that being sorry for your sin and admitting you've done wrong and even trying to restore, those things are fine. But by themselves, they are not enough. Because though he was remorseful, Judas never let all that guilt and the weight of his sin drive him to Christ. He never went to God for mercy. Instead, he went and killed himself. Peter wept bitterly, but he received the forgiveness of the Lord. Judas felt horribly also, and his answer was, I'm going to go take my own life and commit suicide. One is in heaven today, and the other is in hell today. To complete the thought there, rather than driving him to God, his guilt drove him to despair. And he didn't have godly repentance. Godly repentance has all of those other things. It feels sorry for the sin. It confesses the sin. It even acknowledges the righteousness of Christ, which Judas did that as well. And sure, you're going to try to make up for what you can, but that is not how you get saved. Ultimately, the way you get saved in forgiveness of your sin is godly repentance, which always has with it this ingredient of faith to put your trust in the promises of God. That's the difference between godly repentance and just mere remorse. Godly repentance has faith to trust the promises of God. What I alluded to earlier. If we'll confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whosoever, the Bible says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, what we're talking about is if Judas... You say, what should Judas have done other than kill himself? He should have found where Jesus was being tried and just hollered out to him and said, Jesus, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! You say, what would have happened? Jesus would have forgiven him. If he couldn't find him in the trial, he should have went up to the foot of the cross and looked up at Jesus and said, I am so sorry for what I've done. Would you please forgive me? The Lord would have forgiven him on the spot. But he didn't do that. Make sure you don't leave this world feeling sorry for your sin, but never actually receiving the forgiveness of the Lord by trusting in the promises of God. There's a big difference. The last thought on this second point is this. Look at verse 25. This is in the middle of their prayer. You're going to read the worst trade that's ever been made. It's the worst trade that's ever been made. I've told y'all before, I had an uncle that by reports I've heard, traded a guy something for his horse, my uncle's horse. And my uncle told him, said, yeah, he doesn't look so good, but I'll take that for him, right? I'll take such and such amount of dollars for this horse, but I'm telling you, it doesn't look so good. And... uh he ended up taking a lot of money for the horse, and finally the guy called back and said, so-and-so, yeah, this horse is blind. You sold me a blind horse, and you had to know it was blind. He said, absolutely, I told you it doesn't, see, it doesn't look so good. I told you it doesn't look so good. That's a bad trade. That's a bad trade. This is the all-time worst trade. Look at verse 25. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all people, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place of this, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This is mind-blowing. Judas was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. He turned that away, and he chose to go to hell for eternity. And what did he get for it? 30 pieces of silver that he didn't even want and he never spent. It's the worst trade of all time. Some people, and I've talked to a few, they think we can lose your salvation. Oh, you've got eternal life. Jesus has forgiven you of your sin, but you do something really, really bad, and God takes it back. That is such hogwash. 
I'm not even going to go into all of that other than to say this is their poster boy. Judas is the classic example of someone, biblical example, someone who was saved, had salvation, and lost their salvation. No, he's not. Judas was never saved. Judas is not the class. Write that down. He's not the biblical example of someone who had salvation and lost their salvation. He was never saved. We know this for multiple reasons. But as you're writing that, just look on the screen. You'll not have time to turn there. Just look on the screen. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did not I, did I not choose you, the twelve? Jesus admitting, I chose you. I chose and I knew who you are. I know all the details. Know everything about you before, before it happens. He's, he's God in the flesh. In John 6, verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you, what's the next word? Yet one of you is going to become a devil. No, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He doesn't say, one of you is going to betray me and lose your salvation. One of you, I knew it when I chose you, and you're going to fulfill a prophecy. And I know that opens a can of worms in our... We have a lot of questions about that we're not going into today. The answer is that one word starts with S. <laughs> Sovereignty. Okay, just, anyway, moving on. Number three. Back in Acts 1. Oh, by the way, if Jeff, is he, if he's not the classic example of a saved person losing their salvation, then what is Judas? I'm glad you asked. Now, this is important. Judas is the classic example of a tear among the wheat. Everybody listen. Do you understand there were only 12 apostles to begin with? And one of them was a non-believer. He faked it. He acted like a follower of Christ. He acted like a devoted lover of Christ. He acted like a disciple. One of the 12. You know what I'm smart enough to realize this morning? We have people here. By the way, had you lived in, in that time period and had you known the disciples, you would have liked Judas. You would have liked him. He's likable, guarantee you. The other apostles were shocked. You feel Peter's shock in verse 17. He was one of us. They never saw it coming. When he comes in the garden and he's leading the charge to arrest Jesus, you can sense it like, Judas, what are you doing? You're one of us. Come on, man. What's the matter with you? What are you doing? This blows their mind. You would have liked Judas. He's the classic example of a pretender. I don't know who you are. We got pretenders in the room this morning. We would be foolish to think one of the 12 were, but nobody here is. You say, Jeff, everybody here, if you would ask them, we'll all raise our hand. Yes, we're all trusting Jesus as our Savior. Some in the room are really not true followers of Christ. Do you know this with all your heart, that His blood has ransomed you from your sin? Do you know with all your heart? Number three. Finally, we get to the replacement of Judas. This is the second part of verse 20, and this is the passage out of Psalm 109 that David wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let another take his office. Now look at verse 20. So one of the men, here's Peter's solution. So one of the men who have accompanied with us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he, Jesus, was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they're going to put forward two men. So real quickly... Matthew chapter 19, I believe it's verse 28, taught us something. Catch it, what I'm about to say. It is God's plan, and this is going to happen, that the 12 apostles of Jesus will sit on 12 thrones overseeing the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming kingdom. This is going to happen. 
How many apostles? On how many thrones? Twelve. Overseeing how many tribes of Israel? Twelve. Notice, it's not going to be 11 apostles on 11 thrones overseeing 12 tribes. It's not going to be 13 apostles sitting on 13 thrones overseeing 12 tribes. It's going to be 12. That's why, Jude, that's why Peter's standing and saying, so one of the men. We only need one. We only need one. Yeah. 11 have been faithful. 11 are going to occupy those thrones. One was unfaithful. We need to replace him. Here's what that means. When we get to Acts chapter 12 and James... Remember our list in verse 13? we got Peter and John and James and Andrew. James, that third guy listed, he's going to get killed for his faith in Acts chapter number 12. We're not going to need to replace James. We just need to replace Judas. He's the unfaithful one. And so four requirements. If you're taking notes, what we learn in verse 21 and 22, four requirements are put forth to be this apostle that's going to take Judas's place. Requirement number one. The person had to be familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist. Sorry I ran out of space at the end. You have a little bitty line to write John the Baptist. You can shorten it up as the Bible does and just call him John Baptist. Had to be familiar with that. I don't know that it means that they themselves had to be baptized by John. Possibly they had to be familiar with that. They already were aware and interacting with Christ. This is what's laid down as the requirements, the conditions, the qualifications to take Judas's place. Familiar with the ministry of John. Number two, they had to have been personally trained by the Lord. Personally trained by the Lord. As he was coming in and out among us, these, these guys had to be there. Here's what that tells me. All that time we were reading about what was going on in the life of Christ and his disciples in the book of Matthew, other people were there. Maybe not always, but often other people were there coming and going, and they were witness to much of what was happening. So they had to be personally trained, personally trained, not just, oh yeah, I'm trained by this person who was trained by Christ. No, these people had to be trained by Christ. Number three, very important. This, whoever's going to replace Judas, must have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3 or so, I think it was, Jesus is convincing his disciples, his apostles, that he really is alive. He shows them it really is him. He keeps appearing. He keeps talking. Shows them his hands and feet. They get to touch him if they want. He eats bread and fish. Whoever's taking Judas's place has to be just as convinced as the 11 are convinced. It's not like, hey, I can vouch. These guys saw him alive. No. I can say for myself, I know he's alive. I've dealt with Christ. I know. I'm ready to die for that. We can't have one defector among the 12. Not one. The enemy would use that. And there were no defectors among the 12. The fourth thing to be true was he had to be chosen by Jesus. The same word in verse 2, Jesus chose his disciples, of whom he had chosen, is the same word in verse 24 of their prayer. Lord, would you show which one of these two you have chosen? So that the, the one to replace Judas has to be chosen. Can I just say something real obvious that we shouldn't have to say? Based on those conditions, nobody today should be running around calling themselves apostle. we got all these nice titles. Servant of Christ, elder, bishop, pastor, um, evangelist. Why would anybody go around and try to steal this name? Because it doesn't... Have you seen Christ resurrected? Were you personally trained by him? Were you familiar with it? Were you there at John the Baptist? I don't, you're 2,000 years old? Okay, then stop calling yourself apostle. Let's cut it out. Now, to be honest with the text, some people say Peter's out of line. Peter's out of line. Peter jumped the gun. You know, racers, the gun hadn't sounded and they've started. That fault. Do it again. You're going to get put to the back of the line. 
Peter, you shouldn't have called this meeting because if you would have just waited, God had his apostle to take that 12th spot and his name is Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the apostle Paul. Listen, I'm the biggest Paul fan in the room. I love Paul. Here's the only problem. Paul does not fit the qualifications on that screen. He doesn't fit the qualifications of Acts chapter 1. And you say, that's still not enough for me. I challenge you to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. Here's what's interesting. I read Paul's words. This is amazing. Paul writes about the 12. He doesn't write about the 11 and that guy that took my spot. He writes about the 12 and then himself separately. The 12's ministry was some to Gentiles, primarily to Jews. Paul's ministry was some to the Jews, first to the Jews, primarily to the Gentiles. He has a whole Paul is not going to be the 12th apostle sitting on one of these thrones. Some have tried to say, well, you never read of Matthias again, so this was a mistake. He's not really the guy. It's Paul. No, that's just not true. Matthias is the 12th apostle. So what do we know about he in this? Look at verse 23. They put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. What do we know about these two guys? All right. I'll tell you everything we know about them. They're put forward. That's it. That's all we know. And we know that they meet these qualifications. We think some have read early church fathers said that these two guys were two of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Remember, Jesus sent the 12 out two by two, but he also sent out the 70 disciples in groups of two. Some say that these are two of the 70 so here's what's happened. These two, how, who, who meets the qualification? Get what I'm about saying. I'm coming down toward the end. A big decision is going to take place. They do their homework and they finally realize two guys fit the bill. And that's all they know. As far as the 120 people are concerned, they're even. We couldn't make a difference. We can't make the call. So what do you do when you need specific guidance? What do you do? Pray. When the Bible, you've looked at it, and both qualify. Got two good options. Then you pray. How do you pray? Look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, this is after they've done their homework. They got the two. They said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Lord, we've done all we can do. We feel that it's one of these two. Would you show which one of these two? Why do they pray this? Is everybody feeling this? Corporate prayer is now back in play. It wasn't just verse 14. It's going to come up in 12 chapters, and sometimes it's multiple times within a chapter, twice in this chapter. Corporate prayer, but now they're praying very specifically. It's not he prayed and said, you, Lord, who know. They prayed, Lord, we need your guidance. We want your will. We're surrendered to your will. We need your direction. Looks even to us, but you know the hearts. Can I encourage you and me? This little prayer right here is something we should emulate over and over and over in our life. Don't just go through life making decisions. Young people. I see some of our young people. Don't just start dating. Don't just ask somebody out because you find them attractive. Don't say yes to somebody just because they asked you out. Pray. Here's what you ought to do. I, I dare you, young people. I dare you. Go through life like, I'll get back with you. Why? Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Is this guy a shyster? Is he a jerk? You know his heart. You know his heart today. You know his past. And you know his future. Should I go out with this guy? Lord, you know me. 
Are we good together? Am I going to get in trouble? Am I even ready to date? Am I going to get out there and start doing stuff that my parents and everybody that loves me and loves the Lord has been telling me not to do? Am I going to get out there and start making all those mistakes because I'm too young, I'm not ready? You ought to pray about it. You ought to pray about college. Don't just go to college. Do your homework. And when all things are equal, what does the Bible say about these schools? What does the Bible say about the study you're going to do? And when all things are equal, go to God. Now, Lord, you know every professor I'm going to have and how influential they are and how gullible I am. And so, Lord, protect me. Should I? Which one of these? You ought to pray about marriage. Lord, should I? You know this person. This is it for life. You know them now. You know them later. You know me. Don't just go to a church. Lord, you know the hearts. Is this the right church for me? Lord, should I take this job? God, should I get that car? Lord, you know the history of this car. You know how long it's going to last. I'd like to make a good investment. Should I get this one or this one? And you're thinking, you're silly. Okay, go ahead and buy the one you always buy. I bought another lemon. Pray. When appointing leaders like we will in a few months. When a church appoints leaders like we will when we get past chapter 6. You better be praying. Lord, we've done our homework. What's your, what's your will? You know the hearts. When you're going to hire someone, Lord, I've got these options. You know the hearts. When you're about to make a life-impacting decision, you know what I'm saying? A big, impactful decision. Lord, what is your will? What does your word say? The early church looked to the word of God and they looked to prayer. What does your word say? And what does the Holy Spirit say? So they prayed. And then we get to verse 26. Notice verse 26. Let's finish there. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the last occurrence of casting lots in the Bible. You say, I've never even known. What in the, some of you, honestly, don't raise your hand because you don't know until you know, right? Some of you are like, what in the world is casting lots? Is this something brand new that they did? It's not brand new. They'd been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Apparently, it was this. You get a couple of stones. You put a mark on it for Justice Barsabbas, Joseph Barsabbas Justice. And you put a mark on it for Matthias. And they put it in a container and they shake it around. And apparently, either the one that comes out first or one that comes out with some whatever emblem in the right position, that's how they know. And so as you're hearing that, you're probably thinking, time out, time out, Jeff. <laughs> All this buildup, you just said, 12 thrones, 12 apostles, 12 most powerful people besides Jesus in the history of the world. And number 12 was picked by putting a couple of stones in a container, putting a mark here, a mark there, rolling it out. And that's how it's, are you kidding me? Is that how I'm supposed to pick my college? Is that how I'm supposed to pick my wife? Is that how I'm supposed to pick the car, put the blue dice in, and put the red dice in? If the blue comes out, you buy the blue. You, you may be thinking, this has to be like the craziest thing ever. Does this even work? Do y'all remember when the children of Israel marched around Jericho and beat Jericho, big city? What happened after that? They went up to Ai, and what happened? They got beat by little Ai. They, why did they lose? Why did they lose to Ai? Beat, beat Jericho. Wow, that's impressive. Lose to Ai. What was the problem? They had sin in the camp. And you know what God says? Joshua, bring all the tribes around. 
And they picked that tribe. Single them out. Get all the heads of the clans. That one. Roll again. And that family. And that smaller family. And that smaller family. And on down, down, down. And it's that guy right there. Achan. You've committed sin. What have you done? Yep. I'm why we lost. You serious? It works. You remember Jonah's on the boat? And the mariners are like, such a storm as this. they like, this has to be the hand of God. God is angry at somebody on board. They cast lots. It's the preacher over there. That can't be right. Cast lots again. It's you. Have you done something? Yeah, what should we do? You ought to throw me overboard is what you ought to do. Because your lots are telling you the truth. The land allotment. Who gets this section of the, of, of the promised land? Which tribe gets this one and that one? They cast lots. The temple priests, we got more priests than need to work at any one time, so we need to do a schedule. How is the scheduling done? By casting lots. Look on the screen. Watch this. Proverbs. Look at verse 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Its every decision is from the Lord. So this is the last occurrence. Do we have that as a note? What we're reading in Acts is the last time that lots are cast in the Bible and the book of Proverbs, verse 16-23, says that the lot is controlled by the Lord. Is that a note? Oh, is it up there? Oh, yeah, there we go. That's it. It wasn't on, it wasn't on there. I'm sorry. That's a long note. Who made that? Who put 39 blanks in one note? Okay, anyway. All right. So as you're writing, let's, let's finish with this thought this morning. So Jeff, again, if something as important as the 12th apostle is selected by casting lots, is that something we should use today? I would propose to you, no, it is not. We should not make major decisions of life by casting lots. Why? Because something happens in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells each Christian and indwells the church. The Holy Spirit is the guide of the church. So now we're finishing this morning literally where we, where we began. We're going to go to the Word of God and see what it has, it has to say about our decision. And we're going to do our homework and we're going to use our brain. And we're going to talk it out. And we're going to look at the circumstances. But when it's all said and done, and if all things are evil, even, and the Bible has not like, given us any indication of a tiebreaker, and we have multiple godly choices to choose from, but we need practical insight into one thing, we're not going to cast lots. What are we going to do? We're going to pray to God. We're going to pray and ask God, would you let the Holy Spirit, we've done all these other things, we're asking you to prompt our heart in, if I should say yes to the dating. If I should go to that church or that. Lord, show me which one. Should I do this ministry opportunity or this other one? Lord, you know all the hearts. And it's all equal in my mind. I want your will. This is your will at the end of the day. And so we turn to the word of God and we turn to prayer. My last thought for you this morning is this next note. And I apologize if you're still writing that one. Would you notice with me this morning? This is important. These 120 people in the upper room did not meet to decide God's will. They didn't meet. All right, hey, let's decide who's going to be number 12. They didn't meet to decide God's will. They met to discern and discover 
God's will. How? By doing their homework. Here's the requirements. Here's who fits the requirements. There's implied obvious discussion that takes place within our verses today. And then they know what the Bible says about this, this person. Judas is to be replaced. There's a reason he died. And he is to be replaced. And here's two people that fit the qualifications. And pos- it seems the only two people. And so at the end of the day you turn to the Lord in prayer. So they didn't meet to decide God's will. They met to discover God's will. And I want you to finish your notes this morning with this. It's the same today. Please get what I'm saying. I'm, I'm going to use the word church leaders, but it's a church. It's a Christian. This note applies to a single Christian. It applies to a church, and it surely applies to church leaders. But I offer to you this. When church leaders are spending time in God's Word and applying its principles to the decision... When church leaders are spending time in prayer, when church leaders are surrendered to God's will, Lord, we're going to do, we want to know what your will is. We will do it, and we're going to pray for that. So we're surrendered. We're asking you to give us wisdom and prompt us, and we're applying the word of God. And when we allow for proper counsel and instruction and insight, and we've done our homework, I contend with you. When a Christian or a church or church leaders do those four things, they will not miss the will of God. You will not miss the will of God. You will nail it. What are they again? Surrender to the will of God. Be being in a season of prayer about the issue. Be in the word of God. Apply the word of God to the issue. Allow for counsel and advice from godly people. Don't listen to ungodly people who don't love the Lord. Listen to godly people. Surrender to His will, praying you will discover the will of God. You can't miss it when those four things are in place. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Just two thoughts. Heads bowed, eyes closed. The early church looked to the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures for truth, and they looked to prayer. So I'm just going to ask you, Heads bowed, eyes closed. Answer this one in yourself. Yes or no. Do you have a large decision that you're trying to make in your life? Is there a big decision in your life? Is there something in your life right now that you need guidance on? Is there something you need guidance on? You're like, I want God's will. I'm surrendered to God's will. So is there, you may be sitting there and say, Jeff, I really don't have a big thing going on right now. Okay, that's fine. There are people that are here that have some big decisions to make. Be honest with yourself as you have been preparing to make that decision. Can you honestly say, I have checked the Word of God to see what it says? First question is, what does the Bible say about my decision? Second, have I done my homework and learned as many facts and circumstances as I can? Have I gotten godly counsel from other people? People, again, that love the Lord. Not unsaved people who don't want the best for me. Not people who don't have a heart for God, who don't care. Not people just going to tell me, do what you want to do. No, what the Word of God actually says to do. Can you honestly say you have sought His truth in His Word? You've sought godly advice, godly counsel from His people. You're surrendered. But can you honestly say the last thing? I know what the Holy Spirit is telling me. If not, you need to pray. God, I want you to prompt me in this decision. Don't let me miss it. I'm surrendered. I want your will. 
And then the last thing. Don't raise your hand. Is there anyone here this morning? You have some unconfessed sin. Because in this room, there are people, and the three kinds of Christians I alluded to, there are some that confess their sin, and they receive the Lord's forgiveness. Praise the Lord for that. Keep doing it. You're going to need to keep doing that. But there are some that don't even confess their sin. And you wonder why you just have such a sluggish walk with the Lord. Do you need to confess some known sin? Let the Holy Spirit put His finger upon it. And you ought to right now, right now, start confessing that and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Maybe I'm talking to someone this morning and you're like, Jeff, if you knew what I... I would not, never want you to know what I've done. I wouldn't want the people at Grace View to know what I've done. The good news is we don't have to know. You don't have to come tell me. Can you honestly say you have confessed that sin or those sins to the Lord? And when you have, go ahead and have big faith, not weak faith, but strong faith, and say, God, I'm confessing it, and I'm forsaking it. Lord, I'm leaving that sin. I'm not returning to it. I really am sorry, but I'm going to now receive your forgiveness, and I'm going to stop wallowing in guilt hunched over in my Christian life. I'm going to be like Peter and get up and move forward. What he did was horrible. And maybe you're saying what I've done, Jeff, was horrible. Well, tell it to the Lord and receive his forgiveness this morning. If you need guidance, ask him. Ask him right now. If you need forgiveness, confess right now and receive his forgiveness. Father, Lord, as we close, I know these are the two main points out of our text. Lord, I know for a fact that though they may seem a little generic to people, God, I know that, that this is where we live. We have people that need your wisdom on things. So I pray that we would seek your wisdom in a biblical way. May we research your word, all of it, not just a favorite little verse that says what we want it to say, that we've twisted it around, but truly want your will. We want to know, and we're willing to ask other people who may know more about that subject than we do. What does your word say? Lord, I pray that you would help our people to make godly decisions that please you. And let us run to you in prayer and with the word. And then, Father, Lord, I pray that none of our people who are born again and truly saved will walk around defeated. Lord, may we get up right now victorious because you give us a massive measure of faith to receive your promises that if we'll confess our sin, you're faithful faithful, faithful. You always do it. And you are justified in forgiving us our sins. And you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you smile upon us. And you're not keeping account of our sins. And we thank you for that. Lord, I thank you that your mercy endures forever. May we all walk out of here today with that. Lastly, Lord, for the ones that are here this morning that do not have full assurance in their heart, they have some doubt about their salvation. Lord, I pray that you would burden them and that they would seek us out today for help on how to know 100% that their sins are forgiven. We ask these in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.